You are listening to the audio edition of Unstoppable Farce, The Mitch Maloney Story, by Mitch Maloney, read by the author. Chapter 12 Escape from Area 54 The first thing I notice as I slide back into consciousness is the smell, the stench of death and human excrement. Slowly, my eyeballs focus up and I see uneven cobblestones, cobweb-covered iron bars, rat skeletons, and shafts of light cutting through the dusty air. If you've seen one subterranean torture dungeon, you've seen them all, I guess. Then a damp breeze hits my scalp, something I realize I haven't felt for nearly a week. I can barely make out my reflection in the steel bars, but it's enough to make me want a wretch. What I see isn't the face of Mitch Maloney, handsome and successful it-boy of the comedy world, but a hideous, patchy, bald-headed monster. What happened to my beautiful hairpiece? What happened to Dennis? I shriek like an innocent child unfairly deprived of a cherished possession. But no one is there to answer my tortured screeching, except for the other guy in the dungeon. He tells me that in all likelihood, the wig's at the after-party. The after-party, I ask, horrified to realize that I wasn't invited. It hurts, more than the open weeping scabs on my noggin, or the bruises, gashes, and shoe prints that cover the rest of my body. What happened to me, anyway? If you've got some info, you gotta help me out. I beg my dungeon buddy. The last thing I remember, I was getting sucked out of my own body and sent into space for some kind of demonic astral battle or something, and then I wake up here. I don't even know if Beelzebub conquered Mestopopolis or what happened. Maybe Amy Poehler was right when she said, even demons gotta sleep. And note one. Or maybe, the guy clears his throat, you were actually unknowingly under the influence of a topical psychoactive narcotic. Liquefied otter droppings have been known to produce just those sorts of hallucinations. Can you think of any creams or lotions or perhaps adhesives that were applied to your skin recently? Well, there was the glue for the hairpiece I was wearing. Exactly, he says. The more this guy talks, the more things fall into place. And not only that, everything about him is copacetic. From his smooth, reassuring baritone, reminiscent of Michael Barbaro, to the handsome, delicate features of matinee idol Danny Trejo. Okay then, so what exactly happened in Studio 8H after I checked out? Well, he says, 
You collapsed onto the weekend update desk, which caused Sarah Sherman to have a grand mal seizure, which triggered Lorne Michaels to go into cardiac arrest. Then Bowen Yang flew into a maniacal rage and began violently pummeling your lifeless body as Molly Kearney tore the wig off your head and proceeded to toss it around with Punky Johnson. The control booth pulled the plug on the live transmission and cut to a best of Rob Schneider collection as I managed to intervene and drag you to safety before we were both seized by security and brought down here. That's a lot of information. A lot of dramatic, tragic, detailed exposition to process. So I take a breath and consider it all. Well, I guess it could have been worse. It could have been the best of Chris Catan. So what's your deal anyway, I ask? You just happen to be waiting in the wings? Are you a stagehand or something? So he explains how he doesn't work for the show, but actually snuck into the building because he's been trying to give me something. And then he reaches into his pocket and hands over a business card, which you got to admit, takes some real chutzpah. A nobody like this guy pitching to a big shot like me. Rhett Kahn, business development expert, says the card. Interesting handle, I say. Well, he says, I'm a distant ancestor to Genghis, and I guess Mom had a thing for Clark Gable. Sorry, people tell me I've got a habit of over-explaining things. It's okay by me, Kahn. I appreciate the intel. I'm not sure I'm in need of a business development expert, though. Let me tell you something, he says. There are a lot of people in show business that think they can get by without a BDE. But sooner or later, you'll find yourself in a position where having one would really give you a boost. And when that day comes, Mr. Maloney, you go ahead and dial the number on that card. No strings attached, eh? I like your style, Con. But if you know so much, then tell me how to get out of here and on to the after party. And while you're at it, tell me how to get my whole career back on track. That's not what I do, says Rat Khan. I can't predict the future. Think of me more as a ghost of Christmas past sort of guy. Wait, you said something about a heart attack. Khan looks at me real serious and nods. Are you telling me? That Unky Lorne? The words catch in my throat. But just in case it isn't clear, I stick out my tongue, cross my eyes, and tilt my head so that he gets what I'm talking about. He nods. Cheese and rice. Lorne Michaels. R.I.P. You know what? As crazy as it sounds, I can't help but feel some kind of responsibility for this tragic turn of events. Khan is nodding real enthusiastically now, so I can tell he's sympathetic to my feelings of guilt, as misplaced as they may be. I only met the guy a week ago, but he really did become like an uncle to me, like the unapproachable, megalomaniacal, overrated, self-absorbed, out-of-touch, manipulative, power-hungry, money-hungry, hungry-hungry uncle I never had. Well, at least he died doing what he loved, bossing people around. And now he'll be calling the shots on that big soundstage and... Do you hear that? interrupts Khan. And sure enough, there it is. Scritch, scritch, scritch. And next thing you know, 
The tip of a saw pokes through the wall and arcs into a ring, which doesn't seem possible. A little jigsaw cutting through stone? But judging by the sawdust flying everywhere, it looks like the wall is actually just plywood painted to look like a dungeon. So hats off to whoever did the paint job. I guess Khan registers my surprise, because he says, Oh, did you think this was an actual torture dungeon? No, no. This is just an old set. We're in the scenery cellar. In the sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-basement of 30 Rockefeller Plaza. Now that Retcon has clarified things, I can tell this place ain't exactly the state penitentiary. But I guess in a pinch it's secure enough for a theater major like me. So the plywood ring falls out and a mousy little head pops through and scans the room. A mousy, middle-aged lady's head with a hopeful, deluded gleam in her eyes. The unmistakably demented expression of the arguably great Sherry O'Terry. Her skin is streaked with grime. Her hair is a matted mess, and what's left of her clothing is just dirty rags. She says she recognizes me. Aren't you that hot new comic that famous comedian Biweekly Mirror said reinvented stand-up? You're... Mike Mahoney, right? No, wait, that's not it. You're Matt Macroni. Is it Mick Mulvaney? Now, under normal circumstances, I'd erupt in fury if someone mangled my handle. But I cut O'Terry some slack, since she seems kind of off-kilter, even by baseline O'Terry standards, and also because she's springing me from this phony torture dungeon. So I just tell her she can call me Mitch. You got it, Mitt, she replies. So are you coming or not? I say to Khan, let's shimmy through the hole and get out of here before the guards come round. But he says, don't worry about old Retcon. You go ahead. I'll see myself out. And then he begins to slowly fade away like he's being erased right in front of me. Just like in that old movie. What was it called? Eraserhead. I shake my head thinking I must still be hallucinating. But Khan says no. He really is dematerializing and not to worry about it. Because he'll explain it all later. But just remember, if I ever need his help, to call the number on the card. It's like this retcon guy's whole deal is trying to make my life easier. What a pal. So I thank him and crawl through the hole in the wall with Sherry O'Terry and into the cramped habitrail of corrugated tubing lined with ducts and cables that make up the invisible foundation and infrastructure of the building, the catacombs below 30 Rockefeller Plaza. O'Terry asks about how I got stuck in the scenery cellar, so I... Start off by telling her I just hosted the show. You did? Did you kill? I bet you killed, didn't you? I can honestly say that I did. Well, good for you, Midge, she says. So I guess the tragic double meaning went over her head, but then again, subtlety never really was her ballywick anyway, so I changed the subject. So what are you doing crawling around in the ductwork down here in the sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-basement of a boob-tube megaplex like this, O'Terry? This isn't some off-target attempt to get back to 8H, is it? There must be somebody that could hook you up with tickets. No, no, she says, and she tells me all about how she escaped from a laboratory on another level, known as Area 54, where they'd been doing 
nightmarish experiments on her and a few other where-are-they-nows from the show. But the things she saw and the things they did to her, she says, are unspeakable. But that kind of talk just makes me want to hear more, so I pry a little. Come on, O'Terry. Nothing's unspeakable. Haven't you ever heard that saying, if you see something, say something? Okay, then, she says. Let's see. They've implanted working laser glands into house cats. Interesting. There is an actual goat boy in a pet who they feed other failed genetic experiments. You don't say. And for some reason, they put a live turtle in my uterus. And that's not even based on a sketch or anything. That was just the doctor being weird. You know, oh, Terry, on second thought, maybe you had a point about some things being unspeakable. I wonder if Area 54 was what David Spade was hinting at in the first of his several books when he said there's something intangible, but somewhat tangible, about this place that drives people crazy. And note two. She's lost track of time, so it might be months or even years since she busted out. But so far, she says it hasn't been too bad, because there's a lot to explore and plenty of rats that come in through the sewage system. Are you telling me you're living off the flesh of sewer rats? Don't be ridiculous. I'm not eating rats. They're way too fast. But their droppings are everywhere and make for a fun, easy snack. It turns out, escaping from a fake medieval torture dungeon through a subterranean labyrinth is a lot like writing a memoir. The further into the tunnels you go, the slower you move. Not because you're tired, but because doom seemingly lurks at the end of every dark, slippery tube you consider crawling into. Like some dark passage of your memory that you know you might need to go through if you're ever going to emerge on the surface but might also lead to a grisly or perhaps deeply embarrassing result. But for now, you just have to accept that not every ventilation shaft or laundry chute is the path to freedom. And some aren't even particularly amusing or well-written. Some are just dark, slippery tubes you need to crawl through quietly, maybe between the holidays when nobody's paying attention, to get from point A to point B or, in this case, from chapter 11 to chapter 13. Or maybe it's just the liquefied otter droppings that have distorted my perception of time, making the last few hours seem like weeks. Of course, it's always the drugs that slow you down, even when you think they're helping. I tell myself that once I come out of this hallucinatory haze, It'll be like starting over, like on New Year's Day or something. I'll get things back on track. I'll get back on the road and the chat shows and get to work on my next hour. And maybe even my memoirs. Speaking of memoirs, I think O'Terry might be the only cast member that never published a famous comedian's autobiography. I wonder if that gnaws on her, the same way she's gnawing on that handful of rat poop she's gathered up. I wonder how closely related a New York sewer rat is to an otter, and if their droppings might have a similar, possibly milder effect. It might explain why O'Terry seems to be so off-kilter. And then, as we shimmy through another portal, I see something that reminds me of another explanation for O'Terry's mental state, 
a stencil that says Area 54. Hey, O'Terry, isn't this the place where that evil doctor did his depraved experiments on you? But based on the way she's shaking her head and clasping the other side of the shaft, it looks like she's not in the mood for chit-chat. So I have a peek through a great event, and my first thought is, okay, O'Terry really has lost it, because there's no experiments going on here. There's just a bunch of old, probably fake medical equipment, and a couple of mannequins with slicked back blonde hair wearing sexy nurse uniforms. And I'm thinking, what kind of a sleaze bag set this up? They kind of look like Lauren's personal assistant slash bodyguards, the Lornettes. So that might answer the sleaze bag question. But just like the dungeon set painting, you've got to admire the craftsmanship. They look so realistic, I could almost swear they're breathing. And then one adjusts her sexy stethoscope, and I see something else. A mysterious figure lurking in the shadows just beyond them. The rear view of someone in black scrubs hunched over a steel table, moving slowly and precisely, like he's really in the zone. He says, LN-42, I need you to inject the triprobe into the right differentarium. And she starts prepping some kind of tube. Then he turns to the other nurse and says to her, LN-16, we have to translucentize the stoling of the donor body. And she moves to the other side of the room. I see what's left of the patient on the table. The hollowed-out noggin of Unky Lorne himself. The words the doctor uses mean nothing to me, and as far as I can tell, it's pure gobbledygook. Like an old Al Kelly gag or something. But what do I know? I never even went to brain surgery school. But even if the words he's saying aren't familiar to me, the man that says them does ring a bell. The wizened, heart-shaped face. The brushed-back mid-century brill cream hairdo. Hey, O'Terry, isn't that Steve Higgins, the three-decades-long Lorne lieutenant, more well-known to showbiz civilians as the Tonight Show's second banana? No, she's shaking her head. Whispers, it's his evil brother, Bleave Higgins. But he doesn't even have a mustache. How are we supposed to know he's the evil one? Well... If you look closely, he's got a shock of gray running through his hair, and he wears mirrored sunglasses instead of the horn rims. Sunglasses seem like a bad idea for a brain surgeon. They're x-ray sunglasses, she explains. X-ray sunglasses, of course. The ideal eyewear for an evil genius. On the other side of the room... LN-16 pulls a sheet off what I'd assumed was some out-of-commission equipment, but turns out to be Devon Walker, tied to a chair, head shaved and marked up with grease paint. I remember back to the waning days of 2022, before Walker had even honed his spot-on impressions of Clarence Thomas or Nacho Picasso, not to mention creating Black Pete, the politically incorrect, calamari-addicted pirate. It had become one of the most iconic characters in the show's history. You know what, O'Terry? Something about this whole setup feels familiar, you know what I mean? Rich old white fella stealing the body of the healthy young black guy. Reminds me of a movie I saw once. Get out, she says, and I take her point. If we're ever going to get out of these catacombs, we have to stay focused, not reminisce about old movies. Like Martin Short once wrote, 
Everything else in life unravels if you're not perpetuating your own survival. You have to take care of yourself. And note three. It might sound selfish to outsiders, but that's just the attitude you gotta have if you want to make it in show business the way I have. Dr. Higgins is getting frustrated trying to rev up a rusty cranial saw and asks LN42 for a little help. So, right in front of us, just beyond the grate, she sets down something Higgins had called the 7XL, a fancy, high-tech, dry-ice-filled purple jar and current residence of Unky Lorne's Big Gray Walnut. I grab O'Terry's shoulder and I say, Look, I want to get out of here as much as you do, but this might be an opportunity to do what's right and also make some serious simoleons. I mean... Just imagine what that thing's going to be worth on the black market. Now I need you to use your remarkably tiny body to slide through the grate and bring that brain jar back over to me. She nods, still frightened, but she gets it. As in, the idea. But also the 7XL. Soon we're racing through the tubes and I feel the rush of momentum once again. Like, not only are we about to escape from this building, but even from this chapter any second now. And the next thing you know, we're out of the catacombs and climbing through an air duct right into the library of costumes. Which is convenient, because we're able to grab some outfits that we can use to get to the after party by Hooker Bike Brook. And once we get there, we can switch costumes to get past security. Hey, hey, Mitch, before you get too far... And to what do I owe the pleasure of this interruption today, Mr. Engineer? Yeah, just a little bit of a word jumble there, Mitch. Had a little bit of a signal noise, I think, uh, on the line by hook or by crook. I said by hook or by crook. Yeah, see, I'm still hearing it. So let's try it nice and slow, Mitch. By hook or I would say that if I meant it, Darberius, but I'm referring to our three-part plan for getting to the after-party. Step one, dress up like street prostitutes. Step two, steal some bicycles. Step three, follow the brook around the harbor until we get to the party. Okay, then. (laughs) Yeah, sorry to bother you. Again, Mitch, I stand corrected. As per use, oh well. As I'm saying that your interruptions are as tedious to me as the bleating of a sheep, Darberius. Right. Well, I guess I had that one coming. You sure did. And now you've spoiled the next seven pages. So I I guess I'll just skip to the cliffhanger. And there we see it. The beat-thumping, neon-bedecked monstrosity bobbing in the harbor... The spruced-up former Staten Island ferry turned floating comedy barge from hell, known as the SS Mayhem.
This audio edition of Unstoppable Farce, the Mitch Maloney story, was made possible by the Seventh Reformed Church of Latter-day Witnesses, the Bleepers.